Okay, now, yeah, I'm tired. <laughs> I could wait on all this, I guess. Well, one of the things you're talking about is Abraham, you know, he didn't know, he didn't understand completely when he took Hagar and had Ishmael. Mm -hmm. Well, why didn't God explain that to him? Why did God let him go on in his ignorance? Well, he had, all that out? God had just told him that uh, it would be from his own seed. Well, of course, it still looked like uh, his his seed and all when it comes to Hagar. And he had free choice. He made the decision. God knew what he was going to do. And then uh, when uh, the time was right, then God was, you know, in other words, it was, God wasn't ready for Isaac to be born. And when it was right, he had let Abraham know that, uh, you know, he had, made, he had made a mistake there. But why did God not give Abraham enough information in the first place to keep him from making that mistake? Because he could have. He knew he knew what Abraham was going to do. Yeah, but you could. Uh, yeah, but he always does. You could make that argument. It seems to me on uh, when David uh, was moving the Ark of the Covenant and Uzzah lost his life, and why not just immediately tell David not to do this? Or what about uh, the years that? Uh, I was preaching some things that uh, that I that I now believe is wrong. God could have just told me. Okay. Well, I think at, that's at different. Time. I think that's different from this because God made Abraham a promise, and if he would just have expanded on the promise a little bit more, he could have kept Abraham from making that mistake. Well, first of all, he didn't. Uh, in times of ignorance, God winked at, is what Jesus said about even when they had their plurality of marriages and everything like that. And so why would he have stopped Abraham any more than he stopped David from having nine wives or anything separate apart from what was there? In other words, God made a promise and God knew what he was going to do. All right, Abraham just simply went ahead and based on the customs of the day and everything like that, he, in other words, Hagar was really, I mean, his wife Sarah was really the one that conceived this in her mind. And they went ahead and, of course, they had Ishmael, but still, all I see is that God in no way tampering with free choice. And when it came time for God, he told him, all right, when Moses uh, came to the conclusion that he was going to be a deliverer. And so he'd been brought up by his mother in Pharaoh's household. And he had observed things. He had, uh, you know, I think a very good knowledge of, of the past and everything of the Hebrew people. And recognizing his position, his education, their situation, the promise was to Abraham that his seed would be for 400 years. And so they've been in it for that period of time. And so Moses has got this thing figured out, and he's come to the conclusion that he has to be the one that God is going to use for a deliverer. Well, remember Stephen points out that when the Jews rejected him, Moses recognized. And he says, you know, he was using it when you were rejecting Christ. Go on back. Uh, Moses was rejected by you in the first place, too. Well... Um, they still, they exercised their free choice. God then took off for 40 years. See, Mo, the truth is Moses jumped the gun. When God got ready for him to do anything, he's going to tell him. And then after 40 years, and Moses is 80 years old, God just about has to force him to go back. But he's, from Moses' standpoint, he's already made his decision and it was rejected. And God said, no, you know, you're going back now. Well, I think in the same way, Abraham made his decision. But that was Abraham. And God rejected it, and He says, "No, that's not the that's not the way it's going to be." Okay. Question number two: Is why do you think God used circumcision 
as a seal because he was in the he was in the flesh number one uh, in this book none of these diseases now there is apparently good health reasons right. for circumcision in other words that uh, anybody that has not been circumcised uh, they don't they obviously don't have to be everything like that but they need to be very careful to keep themselves clean and all. And you can show, just like he does in that none of these diseases, that cancer of the penis and all is ten times over more common among people who have not been circumcised. But the, all that takes is, is the cleanliness. And so I can see how that living in a, a society where people uh, could not bathe as easily as we can and were ignorant of germs and things like that anywhere, then it was a very sound health practice. We know also now that the eighth day is the best day to be circumcised. It's the first day that you have vitamin K to form and the blood can actually clot. You know, so it's it's the perfect time. So it's actually from that standpoint, it was good. And then it was in the flesh. So it was it was some in other words, what else could you do to your own flesh of of a marking nature that would be positive? That uh, anything you would do would be something negative. But, but that is one thing that can be done to the flesh in the way of actually cutting flesh and leaving a mark there that can be said to be a positive thing. And I can't think of a, a single thing. That, and so he choose, chose that and used it as a, as a sign of the covenant. And another thing where it was, a, I think, a, a difference then than now, remember like when Paul circumcised Timothy because his mother was a Jew and in order that the Jews would receive him, it's just like us. We've never seen one another naked or anything like that. But obviously, with them, they did see one another. That uh, they didn't have bathrooms and houses or anything like that. They had common public baths. And just like the Romans had common public baths and when they were out and all. So they regularly saw one another. And then uh, and they, in the, their situation with bathing and everything, the type of garments they wore. And so it's... Uh, the you know all the indication is that uh, in through their bathing process that that group living every even whole families living in a uh, that although they sep very careful to separate the woman it was pretty obvious that the men was uh, they did see one another and, and of course anybody none of you have been in the military I don't think I was in the military in in the Marine Corps and lived in, of course in a barrack situation and all like that. And it's the only experience I've had in my life. It's in that kind of living where you see several hundreds of people on a regular basis naked, and you're naked. And you, when we showered, we went into a rooms about like this living room with about 25 or 30 showers, and you got 30 guys in there showering all at the same time, and then walking out, and you got your bathrooms. When I was aboard ship, you got a great big room with all kinds of showers. In fact, they conserved water aboard ship and you'd move you get you get a certain amount of time under here and then you soaped up and and we had a rotation worked out four guys using one shower and you step under there and get wet then you soap and you wait for your rotation around now but i'm saying that after a while at first that sounds uncomfortable to you if you've never been in it like i had but after a while you don't think anything about it you go into those common showers where everybody's showering together and you don't think but you do see one another okay so obviously in their situation they did see one another, and it was no big deal, and everything was a communal type thing. Okay. And try to think of what else could they have done. I mean, for a, if he wanted to do a sign. Well, that's a good answer. I mean, that, uh, 
Obviously, I mean, God had to choose it for a reason. And, and, uh, that. Okay. Okay, this is a question that Mark Spears has had. He's, he's studying with a girl he works with. And this is a question she's had. And I don't know if I've... We talked about it a little bit. But why did God ask Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice? Why did he do that? I believe that, uh, number one, we know that... Uh, that God knew in advance he's going to stop him. And we know the reasoning of Abraham. I believe that uh, God knew that he was going to offer up his son as a sacrifice for the sins of all mankind to those people who want to repent and put their trust in him. And I believe that Abraham needed to be willing to do exactly what God was going to do. And so Abraham was willing to give his son up because of his belief and trust in God, believing that God would raise him from the dead. Jesus would go to his crucifixion with the belief that God would raise him from the dead. And Abraham offered up his son with the belief that God would... And so, so I'm, and just like the example that's used when, when the Hebrew writer is trying to get us to obey, it says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the thing which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Hebrews 5, 8, 9. And so it's like Jesus did this. He offered himself up. Use that as an example, and you obey him. And so it's just, it's interesting to me that God, knowing all the time that Jesus was going to be offered up as a sacrifice, took the man that was going to stand out through all of history as he having emphasized this promise and had him to offer up his son. And, 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 and so what kind of faith does it take? I mean, the same, really, in reality, the same kind of faith that Jesus had in God in going to the cross, believing he was going to be raised, that uh, we ought to have that kind of faith. And I think what you also see in Abraham, that this little, this little situation, that we, that we're, it's like in the Church of Christ, and, and others have theirs too, We've got a lot of baptized people who've never repented and put their trust in Jesus. I mean, anybody can have enough, anybody that believes in the possibility of hell and in heaven can have enough faith that just like anybody will buy a quarter to throw in a chance on a million dollars. What big deal about being baptized? You know, but to, to say that, hey, I'm going to put my trust in Christ. I'm literally going to give my life to God and present myself to him a living sacrifice you wouldn't have so many people buying into Christianity without examining it if they understood that they was given their if they were really saying I'm going to present myself a living sacrifice. But it's easy to buy into something on the possibility it may be right when all they want to do is sprinkle you or dunk you in water or or whatever you know, and that's the that's the big criteria they're using. Well, I got two more questions, and they're kind of linked in. Uh... And this is something I've asked you before, and this kind of goes into the lesson tonight. But why were sacrifices required in the Old Testament? And and then ultimately, and I've asked you this and you've answered it, but I'm going to get it on the tape, is why did Christ have to die as a sacrifice for sin? And that's a question, I asked you that because I think that's a question that a lot of people that aren't Christians have to ultimately ask. And even us as Christians have to think, why does God require that? I mean, why was it 
There's no other way. Okay, now the sacrifice, of course, in the Old Testament was to literally impress on their mind that there had to be a sacrifice. It, it was a lamb without blemish or whatever the animal, without blemish. It was the best they had, and, and they gave it up. And, and, it was a, and what it said to them is, even after you've repented of your sins, I mean, you, so you've said you're sorry. You know, you, you still have done this. It doesn't go away. There needs to be an atonement for it. And I think Paul's argument in the New Testament is, you know, how does God maintain his 100% justice and at the same time justify us? In other words, here we are. We're saying, hey, I'm sorry I've repented, but the point is we've still done it. Not only have we done this, we're going to keep doing it. That's the, that's the sad point, that we broke God's law, but we're going to keep on. Well, then here you have that how can we fellowship the creator of the universe, who is holy and absolutely perfect, when we have willfully chose to sin? And so then there has to be an atonement for the sin. And so God, in his wisdom, works out the situation where he literally pays the price what for our, he takes what we deserve as a demonstration of his love for us with the idea of motivating us to, to see how much he loves us and to want to head in, in that direction. But I don't think that the, the crucifixion shows just one thing. I, I believe that all kinds of things are shown there. Uh, one thing, it, it was an absolute proof of Jesus being the Son of God. I mean, after all the miracles and people still rejected it all, uh, you could not have any more conclusive proof. If, if somebody, uh, if that won't convince you, nothing will. So it was a proof that he was the son of God. It's one thing. Uh, number two, it was a demonstration of how much God loves us, that he would actually uh, pay the penalty and take uh, what we deserve. Number three, I think it shows how much God hates sin. And the fact that, uh, that he literally would turn his back on his own son and he became sin in our stead. That, uh, that the, and we see how for these people that walk around with some idea that God is merciful, you know, so that even though I don't obey him or put my trust in him, you know, I'm not that bad a person. How can a merciful God, you know, cast me away for eternity and all? That uh, it's just like the statement, it's impossible for God to lie. God will have no choice. He's perfectly just, and we will not be able to fellowship God because of his very nature unless we are just. Well, then there's only, then the question becomes, how can we be just? We, we, we have all fallen on the law, and yet God loves us. And so what he says is that I'll take the penalty for you based, based on your willing to repent and put your trust in that, in that sacrifice. And so then, if then he can, then I can go ahead and credit you righteousness, based on your trust in me. And I think also man became unrighteous by taking his trust out of God. When when Eve sinned in the garden and Adam, what they really did is took their trust out of what God had said in the first place. And I think again, I don't believe that we have to understand every single solitary. Thing. You're dealing with a, an infinite God uh, who is omniscient. And I don't know that a finite human being right. is going to apprehend. It's sort of like the so-called Trinity. Number one, I don't like to use the term Trinity. It's not in the Bible. But uh, these people that talk so dogmatically like they understand that and all, uh, I do not fully comprehend 
the the triune in one. You know, I feel more comfortable speaking of the one God who has expressed Himself in in these in these various ways and all. Uh, but we don't completely comprehend it. Uh, uh, in the same way, I think there are things that we can see the factual statements that God gives us, and we can see the reasoning behind it. But then to fully comprehend every single solitary thing, uh, I just don't. Uh, and and really, I don't know that that bothers me in any way on that. First of all, your belief is based on evidence, and it's so whether you understand it or not. It's sort of like Jesus said, even though you don't believe in me, believe because of miracles, they testify. So he's saying, even though you don't understand it, look at the evidence. And it, it testifies. But when I look at even this world, and just like you made the observation in there, of, of this guy in being scientifically over and beyond what you can even keep up with. When I see human beings who, who have intelligence that's finite and yet can lose me, in certain areas, that, that my mind, in other words, mathematically, uh, I don't have the mind that would keep up with that person from a mathematical standpoint. It just doesn't. But he does it. And uh, the, some of the, the, the things that they come up with, I have a hard time even grasping it, but I can appreciate all kinds of things about it. But yet, if a human being can be so far beyond me in a certain area, that, that I, can, I have a hard time even understanding what he's saying when he's explained it, then how much more, you know, when God's trying to step down and, and explain things to us. Mm -hmm. I think that's why we don't have any more on heaven than we do. Uh, we've got enough to know it's there and, and that we're going to have, we're going to live forever and it's better than anything we have here. But how... How can you explain something to us when we have no experience with it? And so he just does it. I think uh, Jesus said something like that. He said, if I tell you about earthly things and you don't understand, how are you going to understand if I tell you about heavenly things? Yeah. And yeah, that's a good illustration. All right. What's all the questions I've had? I think there's a lot of things that's interesting that's good to think about that you know, you can't know, just like uh, the the animal kingdom in the first place, the fact that you have carnivorous animals, and the fact that we are, an, uh, can, uh, you know, I've thought a lot about that, you know, the God making us in such a way that we actually kill deer and fish and things like that to eat. And uh, uh, one of the beliefs I have on that is that, that the killing and eating of animals takes away from any holiness that anybody might ever put on the flesh. In other words, from the fleshly standpoint, we're just like the animals. You know, that uh, the, uh, we, it's our spirit that's made an image of God. And I think that maybe the, the thing of, of killing animals and eating them and breeding them and using them in the way we do uh, constantly emphasizes that the unique thing about us is not our fleshly body, but it's our spirit. You know, and, and we're told to even subject, you know, that we're to conquer and subdue everything. And, and they were told that they had all these clean animals that they, they could eat, you know. Uh, I think one thing, you used to talk about that, interesting things to think about. The, you know, you said something like you use the Trinity. But like John Clayton in his book, when he talks about how, what God is and everything, I think 
That to me has done the most of my understanding of anything. Like he talks about how there's a man that's living in a two D space, two dimensional space, yeah, yeah. and he can't appreciate what a three dimensional thing is. Right. He doesn't understand. It. Just in the same way, God is. Right. And he's he's created us, but yet. In your you two dimension, you can give evidence that there is a three dimension, but you can't understand it. Yeah, you can it. explain the. Well, more than you and Sit Louis. <laughs> I like the, that that concept. What, what is true at higher and higher levels, you know, we may not be able to explain it by using higher and higher dimensional levels. Like I think there's a number of things, just like the concept always uh, was. I don't believe a finite mind can comprehend always was. But by the same token, though, your intelligence comes right back at you and says, yes, but something had to always be. So always was blows your mind. But yet something had to always be is a fact that your mind can even see. And so you're saying, well, even though I can't comprehend that, it has to be so. And the fact that God looks at, you know, time more like a circle. You know, I mean, it's just there's no time to God. Uh, that is difficult for us to understand. And yet it has to be. And, and when I look at, uh, to me, the, there's no greater miracle in the Bible than prophecy. And when I look at the times when... God so perfectly forecast, you know, and you and I say, how in the world could that be? But but it is. In other words, the fact speaks for itself. And, and David was so astounded by it in Psalms 139 when he was considering God and all the characteristics. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. So he was saying, I don't understand how that you knew all the days that I was going to live even before I lived them. And I don't understand how you know the words that are coming off my mouth before they do, you know. That such knowledge is too wonderful for me. But, but yet it's a fact. And so that the, the, we look at that perfect foreknowledge of God blows our mind, but yet you've got the evidence in the Bible itself. You know, you just read like the 53rd chapter of Isaiah and think how in the world could that have been written 700 years. Yeah. It's stuff like it's too too wonderful for me. He said, I need to keep quiet and repent and dust and ashes. In fact, what they were really being rebuked for was trying to limit everything that God did to their own understanding, and they come up with their theories about uh, on the various matters was based on their understanding. You know, they didn't understand how how that uh, bad people should prosper and good people could suffer, and so they worked out a a scheme that said that if you suffered, it had to be because of sin. And if you prospered, you had to be good. And so what they did, they tried to get it into something they could fully understand.